is so great to be with you all tonight. How are you doing? Good? Brilliant. That's exciting. Well, tonight our passage is 1 John 2, verses 3 to 11. So perhaps you want to grab a Bible, open up to page 1,225, and then you can follow along. We're going to be picking up on a few of the words and phrases, so you might want to keep it open. But 1 John 2, verses 3 to 11 says this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking to you about how to love difficult people. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and ask them, are you a difficult person? <laughs> now, I am sure, knowing you guys here at The Seven, this room is actually full of very lovely people, so of course the answer is no. But if I'm honest, when I read this passage, I found it immensely challenging. See, John is writing and he's basically saying, if you're a Christian and you do not love your brother or sister, which is another way of saying anybody else, especially those in the church, if you're a Christian and you don't love your brother or sister, then you're a liar. Cheerful sermon tonight. He's basically saying, if you claim to be a Christian and the love of God is in you, but it hasn't yet worked its way through you into the lives of other people, then you're still in darkness. He's saying that being a Christian is more than just about your beliefs. It's also about your actions. It's about your relationships. Now, when I saw that this was the passage I was speaking on tonight, um, the other week, I'll be honest, I laughed out loud after I read it. See, I read it the day after I just had a slight disagreement with my dad. And at the moment of reading it, things still were not resolved, and I was still quite annoyed, he was still quite annoyed, and he lives 200 miles away, so my plan was just to kind of forget about it and ignore it. But God has this very funny way of reminding us of things, of putting a mirror up to our hearts. And so as I read this, it felt like God was reminding me of that conversation. Sometimes it can be painful when he reveals things to us that are there, convicting us, challenging us. But I think in the same way, it's painful to take out a splinter or it's painful to wipe a wound. We know that pain of conviction is good for us. It's God's way of healing us, and sometimes healing can be painful. But the reason this was so painful when God started to convict me about this disagreement I had with my dad was because of this phrase my dad had used the day before. He said to me, Rachel, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. Now, has anyone ever said that to you? Be honest, confession time. Or have you ever said that to someone? Rachel, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. And he carried on, he said, where are your Christian values when it comes to me? 
I thought Christians were supposed to be loving. Now, if I'm honest, I probably should have responded, you know, with something pastoral or kind. My dad knows I'm doing a PhD in theology. He knows I'm about to start training to be a vicar in September. And so really, I should have responded with something, you know, theological or kind and pastoral. But instead, if I'm honest, my response to him was, no, dad, Christians aren't always supposed to be loving. Which, if I'm honest, is terrible theology and terrible pastoral skills. So then the day after, when I read this passage and I get to verse 9 and 10, it talks about loving your brother and sister. Immediately, this conversation, my dad came to my mind. Rachel, where is your Christian love for me? So this morning, I guess it's mainly a preach to myself. But if you guys are up for listening as well, that would be great. How do we love difficult people? How do we love when it is difficult? I'm sure in a room this size, I'm not the only person who perhaps has difficult relationships in my life. Perhaps for you, it's also a family member, a mother, a father, brother, sister, a child. Or perhaps it's a partner or a spouse. Perhaps you've been married a while and things aren't what they used to be. Or perhaps it's someone at work. Perhaps it's a friendship that feels like it's turned sour. I'm sure in this room, there's lots of People who have had a breakdown in certain relationships, and perhaps if you're honest, there's still an anger there towards someone, a bitterness, a pain, a disappointment in what they did or didn't do, in what they did or didn't say, in what that relationship did or didn't become. So what can we learn this morning about how to love people even when it's difficult? What does John teach us? Why does he dare make this challenge to love our brother and sister? Well, the first point tonight um, that I think we can discover in this passage is that God's love is a love unlike any other. God's love is a love unlike any other. See, the context of this letter of 1 John, we find in it very similar language and very similar ideas and theology to the Gospel of John, so much so that people think it's come from the same author and the same community. And actually, they think when John was writing this particular passage, he likely had uh, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in his mind that we find in John 13. And they think that because in verse 7, when John writes, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old command that you've had since the beginning. We think this is the command that Jesus gives to his disciples after he's just washed their feet. In John 13, verse 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is what John is exploring in this passage. This is at the heart of what he's saying. See, the call to live as Jesus did that we find in verse 6 is the call to love as Jesus loved. And the love Jesus shows us as he washes his disciples' feet is a love unlike any other. Jesus demonstrates his love through washing his disciples' feet. And in doing that, it's almost like this visual symbol, this explanation of what he's about to do in a few hours' time for us on the cross. See, in washing his disciples' feet, Jesus humbles himself, serving those who should have been serving him making clean those who in a few hours will abandon and betray him. 
In washing his disciples' feet, Jesus demonstrates a radically countercultural love that's so different to most of what we're used to in society. He demonstrates a generous, costly, self-giving love. This isn't the kind of love you'll find on Love Island. This isn't the kind of love you'll find in most industries, offices, adverts. And it's not always the kind of love you and I experience with one another. See, the love of Jesus isn't transactional. It isn't, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you're kind to me, I'll be kind to you. Actually, we see in the cross and we see in the foot washing that the love Jesus offers us is unconditional. It's undeserved. It's costly. It's generous. It's unceasing. It is not dependent upon our apparent value to him. It's unconditional. It's a love that stands in stark contrast to the love we see in the world. It's a love unlike any other. And it's this same love that Jesus commands you and I to show towards other people. When John is asking us to live as Jesus lived, to love as Jesus loved, he's thinking of this example of the foot washing, this generous, radical, costly love. See, as Christians, our definition of love doesn't come from the world around us, from the people around us. It comes from Jesus. He's the example we're called to follow. He's the one we're called to imitate. But I don't know if you're anything like me, sometimes you can read the Bible and read this call to follow Jesus, to imitate him, to live as he lived and to love as he loved, and think, how on earth am I meant to do that? I thought being a Christian just meant being slightly more moral than your work colleagues, slightly more moral than the people you see on TV. But actually what we find in the Bible is the call to be a Christian is the call to live as Jesus lived, to love as he loved, and he loved in a way unlike anything else we've ever seen before. Do you ever wonder about Jesus? Jesus, how did you love like that? What kind of love is this that led you to the cross? How did you find the capacity to keep loving and giving in the face of hate, in the face of rejection, in the face of pain? And I think we find the answer within John 15 verse nine. See, this command Jesus gives, he gives for us to love one another. He gives it in John 13, but he also gives it in John 15. And this time he starts it by saying, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. We realize that Jesus found the capacity to love others through receiving the love of the Father. He found it through his relationship with the Father. Jesus could love others unconditionally because he lived in the reality that he was unconditionally loved by God. My second point tonight is that we can only love others as much as we realize we're loved. To live as Jesus lived, to love as Jesus loved, is to experience the same intimacy and closeness that Jesus knew with his Father. It's to know the love that he knew. And we see John addressing this when he, um, in verse seven, writes this command, this passage to people, and he says, dear friends, this is who he's writing it to, this is who he's addressing it to. He writes this command to love to those who know they're loved. 
Now, dear friends is translated, perhaps, but not in a way that um, captures the full force of the language. See, the word used there is the word agapetoi in the Greek. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, agapetoi. Agapetoi. I know it's a word you're all familiar with, but this word agapetoi comes from another Greek word called agape, which means love. As many of you know, there's a number of different Greek words for the word love, and the word agape doesn't just refer to a casual kind of love, a friendship love or a physical love. Actually, it refers to a love that keeps on giving, even when the other is unresponsive. Agape is a love that keeps on giving, even when the other seems unlovable, unworthy. It's an unconditional love. And whenever the Bible in the New Testament talks about God's love for us, it uses this word agape. God's love for us is this unconditional love. So when John is writing agapetoi, he's drawing on this word. And so a better translation would actually be dear beloved. Dear you who are unconditionally loved by God, love others. Show this love to the world. Because you are loved by God, you can love others with that same love. And John carries on this thought a few verses later in 1 John 4 verse 19. He's explicit about this when he says this phrase, we love because he first loved us. We can love others because we know the love of God. We can only love others as much as we realize we're loved. We love because he first loved us. We can forgive because he first forgave us. We can make peace with our brother or sister because he's made peace with us. I don't know what your experience is of the love of God, how you would describe it, how perhaps it's impacted your life. But in the Bible, I think we discover the love of God to be the most powerful and persuasive, creative and compelling force in the entire universe. God's love has the power to change lives, to change circumstances. I know for me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents weren't Christians. They led quite wild lives. And so I got invited to church at the age of 14, and that was the first time I'd ever encountered the love of God. And it was a love unlike any other. It wasn't transactional. It wasn't based on what I could do, how good I'd been. It was a love that was unconditional and undeserved. I stand here today as someone who has been changed by the love of God my entire life. God has redeemed me with his love from myself, from my mistakes. He's reorientated my perspective on life. He's revived my soul. He's redeemed me. And the love of God has been the thing that has kept me going in some of the most difficult seasons of life. After my mum passed away, after I left home, after we had miscarriages, after losing jobs, after financial insecurities, after doors have shut, after disappointment, and after relationship breakdown, it's been God's love that has sustained me. I remember in the few weeks after I'd just left home and my mum had passed away not long before, my relationship with my dad was particularly difficult. And I came to, to pray and I um, opened up the Bible and read a psalm. And this line just said, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. In that moment, I knew the love of God, no matter what was going on in my relationships, and it gave me strength. Think about the time after we'd had a miscarriage and being at church in one of the 10 services here and 
coming up for prayer at the end, just feeling lost, feeling devastated, feeling broken, and just experiencing the love of God through a peace that made no sense. God's love has been the thing that's kept me going. It's been the thing that's reorientated my entire life and changed my perspective. God's love has the power to give us hope. It has the power to heal us. It has the power to give us purpose. It saves us from feeling like orphans or feeling inadequate. God's love is the most powerful force you could ever encounter. And actually, God's love says more about us than any achievement or accolade ever will. God's love says more about you than any mistake or heartbreak you've ever been through. And God longs for you to know that love tonight. Do you know the love of God for you, that unconditional, undeserved love that he longs to lavish upon you? Because we can only love others as much as we realize we are loved. But perhaps the thing I find most remarkable about God's love that we find in this passage is that it isn't just a static fact for us to know as Christians, God loves me. But rather we find in the Bible, God's love is an active force that works its way out through our lives. It pursues us, it transforms us. My third point tonight is that God's love has a trajectory. It has a momentum to it. See, John writes this intriguing phrase in verse five. He says, but if anyone obeys his word, and that's Jesus' command to love one another, love for God is truly made complete in them. He's saying God's love is made complete in us when we love others. This word made complete could be translated matured or perfected. God's love matures in us when we love others. But this phrase is also in the present tense, so it's talking about a continuous, ongoing activity. The love of God isn't a static fact we know, but an active force that continues to work its way out in our lives, maturing in us, growing in us, like yeast working through dough. It keeps moving until it's set out what it's completed. And the love of God will not be satisfied in your life until it's reached every corner of your heart and every aspect of your life and relationships. See, the love of God has a trajectory and a momentum and a goal to it. And if you're alive here tonight, which I hope you all are, God's love hasn't finished with you yet. There's more for you to realize. There's more ways in which it can work its way out through your hearts and your lives and your relationships. We find in the Gospel of John and in this letter, 1 John, that the trajectory of God's love isn't supposed to stop with you. It's supposed to work through you. See, God's love matures in us when it is worked out through us. We find in this passage that our relationship with God is not disconnected from our relationships with others. Our relationship with God should affect our relationships with our work colleagues. Perhaps we begin to not need to retaliate, but we can show them kindness even when they're not showing that to us. We can be people of truth and integrity even when that's not the culture that we're in. See, the love of God is, is meant to not just affect ourselves but our relationships is meant to affect how we date perhaps treating people not just for what we can get out of them but respecting them like a brother or sister the love of God is meant to affect family life perhaps we forgive and don't hold grudges perhaps we dare to love others in a way that they haven't yet dared to love us 
that we love people even when they seem unlovable. But this can be challenging. If I'm honest, I can find it hard to love even the nice people in my life. As a cyclist, I can find it very hard to love drivers. And as a driver, I find it very hard to love cyclists. My husband has just been away um, this weekend, and I've missed him a lot, but perhaps the biggest thing I missed was pretty much every morning he'll make me a cup of tea, which is sweet, isn't it? We have an R for Andy. Oh, he's a nice guy. And so I was missing this cup of tea the other morning, but then it made me think as I was thinking about this message. I was like, when was the last time I made him a cup of tea? Now, I would love to blame it on being pregnant and say this baby prevents me from making tea, but that's a lie. And so I was reflecting over the last eight years of marriage, and I realized in that eight years, I have made him one cup of tea in the morning, and it was his birthday a few years ago. <laughs> that's terrible, isn't it? That is terrible, and we've been on the marriage course. I just really need to take more notes. I will get better. I nearly, no, I didn't make you one today, I forgot. But I will make you a cup of tea. But the challenge of this passage this morning, this evening, isn't just to be nice to the nice people in our lives, although I could start by making my husband a cup of tea once in a while. But actually, the challenge of this passage is to love actually when it's really difficult. To love not just the kind people in our worlds, the people who it's easy to love, but to love the difficult people. Because we're called to love not as the world loves, but to love as Jesus loved. And Jesus dared to love the unlovable. He dared to love when he'd been wronged. He dared to love when he'd been rejected. I can find it difficult to love my own flesh and blood, and yet in the person of Jesus, we see someone who loved, served, and died for those who crucified his very flesh and blood. We see a love unlike any other in the person of Jesus. And he dares to ask us to imitate it. The challenge to us tonight is to love others when it's costly. To love others when it's humbling. To love others when maybe it isn't going to be returned. And for me, when it comes to people like my dad, after a disagreement, Rachel, where is your Christian love for me? If I'm honest, my relationship with my dad has probably been one of the most difficult relationships in my life. And yet it's been through that relationship that God's love has grown the most in me and matured the most in me. It's been through that relationship that I've discovered more about the love of God in a way I never expected to. Sometimes I think God allows situations with people in our lives, seasons, as an opportunity for us to grow and mature in his love. It can become the place where he reveals more about who he is to us than we could have ever expected. That evening after I first read this passage that we've had tonight and felt challenged about the disagreement I'd had with my dad, I rang him and said the three words that my husband will know do not come easily to me. I am sorry. And something, if I'm honest, a few years ago would have taken months to resolve was resolved in a matter of a few days. But that's only possible through realizing again the love God has for me and the love God has for you. We can love because we know he's first loved us. We can forgive because he's first forgiven us. We can make peace with others because he's first made peace with us. 
I began to realize that surely if God's love has been big enough for my mess, my chaos, my dysfunctionality, then it's probably big enough for the mess, chaos, and dysfunctionality of my relationships also. Began to have that realization, if God's love is big enough for me, then it's probably big enough for me to show that love to others as well. Imagine what your relationships would be like if you were able to forgive because you know you're forgiven, to make peace because you know you've found peace with God, to radically love others because you know you are radically loved by God. Perhaps as I've been speaking, as relationships that have come to mind and the thought of trying to forgive that person or to love that person feels like trying to muster water out of a dry sponge. I wonder if tonight is an opportunity for God to flood you with his love, to give you the capacity to love and forgive in ways you never thought possible. We have an opportunity tonight to receive God's love afresh. God's love hasn't given up on you. There's still more God longs to show to you.